Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8 13, Humayun and Akbar. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Humayun becomes ruler of the Mughal Empire when his father, Babur, dies in 1531. Shir Shah Suri captures Delhi and forces Humayun to flee India in 1540. An emperor with no empire, Humayun wanders through Sindh and Afghanistan with his few followers. Finally, the Safavid Shah provides Humayun with an army which he uses to retake Kandahar in 1545. And with that, let's see how Humayun recaptured India. Taking India Back Shur Shah, also known as Shur Khan, who founded the Suri dynasty, died in 1545. Five years earlier, he had chased Humayun and the Mughals out of Delhi and ruled over North India from Delhi to Bengal. After Shur Shah's death, his son, Salim or Islam Shah, took over and ruled until he died in 1553. After Salim Shah's death, things got really chaotic. There were three people who all thought they should be the one in charge. Muhammad Adil Shah, Ibrahim Shah, and Sikandar Shah. Adil Shah was the son-in-law of Shur Shah, but people called him Adil the Fool because he was always wasting his money. Ibrahim Shah was Shur Shah Suri's brother-in-law and he had taken control of Agra and Delhi from Adil Shah. Finally, there was Sikandar Shah who came along and defeated Ibrahim Shah to take the throne in 1555. He finally managed to bring some stability to the region, but things were still pretty shaky, especially in northern India. People started reaching out to Humayun, who was in Kabul at the time, to come and take the throne in Delhi. The Mughal and Suri dynasties had roughly equal claims to the throne, both having ruled Delhi for about 15 years. So, Humayun sent an army led by his best general, Bairam Khan, to take back India. They didn't have much trouble making their way through Punjab since they faced very little resistance. Shur Shah had built a strong fortress called Rotas Fort in Jhelum, which is in modern-day Pakistan, to protect against attacks from Afghanistan, but it fell to the Mughals without a fight. The two armies finally met at Sirhind on June 22, 1555, which is in the Indian state of Punjab, about 110 miles northwest of Delhi. Sikandar Shah's army was much bigger, but Bairam Khan was a very skilled technician. The Mughals ended up winning, and the Suri army retreated into the hills of northern Punjab. Then the Mughals marched into Delhi and Humayun took the throne again. It had been 12 years since he fled India. As a reward for his victory, 
Byram Khan was given the title of Kani Kanan, which means Lord of Lords. The Portuguese versus the Ottomans. In the 16th century, the Portuguese and the Ottoman empires were rivals for control of trade routes and territories in the Eastern Hemisphere. As a result of this rivalry, there were several naval battles between the two powers. One of the most notable battles was the Battle of Diu in 1509, which we discussed in episode 11, where the Portuguese Navy defeated a combined fleet of Mamluk and Ottoman ships. This battle was fought near the island of Diu, which was then a Portuguese colony, and helped to secure the Portuguese control of the region. In general, the Portuguese were able to maintain control over the Indian Ocean trade routes and established a trade monopoly with the Spice Islands of the East Indies. In 1517, the Portuguese tried to attack Jeddah in modern-day Saudi Arabia, which was, and still is, a popular staging area for Muslim pilgrims making the Hajj. But the Ottomans and the Mamluks teamed up again and defeated the Portuguese. This victory helped the Ottomans take over Egypt and later the Hejaz. The Ottoman Sultan sent Admiral Saidi Reis to punish the Portuguese for even thinking about attacking Jeddah. Admiral Saidi Reis defeated the Portuguese fleet in the Red Sea in 1548. Then he came back in 1553 to drive them out of the Arabian Sea. However, this second time, the Muslims were defeated and had to retreat into the harbor of Surat in Gujarat, where they were welcomed by the local governor. The Portuguese then sent a bunch of ships to Gujarat to try and pressure the governor into turning over the Ottoman admiral, but he refused to do so. Instead, he offered to sink the Ottoman ships. The Portuguese agreed, and the admiral and his men had to make their way back to Istanbul on land. Along the way, Saidi Ali Reis stopped to visit Humayun's royal court in Delhi, where he also met Humayun's son, Akbar. Akbar, who was only 12 years old at the time, would soon become the Mughal emperor. Another significant battle was the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, in which a coalition of Christian powers, led by the Holy League and including the Portuguese navy, defeated the Ottoman navy. The Holy League was a coalition of European Catholic states formed in 1571 with the purpose of defending Europe against the Ottoman Empire. The League was formed by Pope Paul V and was led by the Republic of Venice and the Spanish Empire, but also included other Catholic European states such as the Papal States, the Republic of Genoa, the Duchy of Savoy, the Knights Hospitallers, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, and the Portuguese Empire. This victory at the Battle of Lepanto was considered a major blow to Ottoman expansion and marked the beginning of the decline in Ottoman naval power.
It should be noted that this Holy League was not just a military alliance, but also a political one. And it had a strong religious motivation because it was formed in order to protect Christianity from the perceived Ottoman threat. Death and Legacy of Humayun Humayun died less than a year after taking back Delhi. On January 24, 1556, he was having a meeting with some Muslim pilgrims who had just returned from the Hajj. After the meeting, he was walking down the stairs when the adhan, that is, the call to prayer, was made. Humayun had this habit that whenever the adhan was called, he would take a knee. He tried to kneel on the stairs, but he got all tangled up in his clothes and fell down the steps. He was seriously injured and died from his injuries three days later. Before we discuss Humayun's successor, that is Akbar, let's talk a little bit about Humayun's legacy and his government. Humayun was a bit of a suspicious person, and he reorganized his government based on the four elements. Kak, which means earth. Ab, which is water. Atish, which is fire. And Bad, which is air. Kak was responsible for things like agriculture, architecture, land management, and public works. Ab took care of the wine cellar, canals, and waterworks. Atish was in charge of the military, artillery, and armory. And Bad was responsible for warehouses, the kitchen, and stables. Humayun also relied on astrology and omens. In 1533, he started building a new city near Delhi called Din Pana, which means Asylum of Faith. It was built on the site of the ancient city Indraprastha, which is mentioned in the Sanskrit epic, the Mahabharata. Humayun set up seven reception halls, each of them named after a celestial body. The Hall of the Moon was where he received judges, ambassadors, poets, and travelers. The Hall of Mars was for military commanders and officers. The Hall of Mercury was for civil officers. The Halls of Saturn and Jupiter were for scholars. And the Hall of Venus was for musicians and singers. Humayun was known for promoting arts and crafts in his kingdom. He wanted his lands to become just as cultured as Samarkand, which at this time was considered the center of culture. And if you want to know more about Samarkand, check out the episode about Timur and how he built it up. Humayun was also a big lover of books, and he converted Shur Shan Suri's special hall into a library. He even took a small library with him whenever he went on expeditions. For example, when he wandered through Sindh from 1540 to 1541, he brought along his librarian. Humayun also built several schools and colleges, including a madras run by a well-known scholar of the time named Sheikh Hussein. Humayun divided the people connected to his government into three classes. 
Each class had its own stipend, and each class was administered by a government official called a saham. The saham was in charge of government grants and salaries for that class. The highest class was the Ahlun Saadat, and it included scholars, judges, researchers, and religious leaders. The second class was called the Ahlu Daulat, which was made up of wealthy nobles, the royal family, military commanders, and government ministers. The third class was the Ahlu Murad, which included court entertainers, musicians, singers, dancers, and storytellers. Humayun dedicated specific days of the week for meeting with each class. Thursdays and Saturdays were for the Ahlu Sadat. Sundays and Tuesdays were for the Ahlu Daulat. And Mondays and Wednesdays were for the Ahlu Murad. Fridays were reserved for prayers and Islamic lessons. Akbar the Great Before his death, Humayun had already chosen his general, Bayram Khan, to be Akbar's guardian. When Humayun died, Bayram Khan was away campaigning against Sikandar Shah in Punjab and had brought Akbar along with him. When he learned of Humayun's death, Bayram Khan had Akbar crowned as the new emperor. The coronation took place in Kalanur, a town in Punjab, on February 14, 1556. After Akbar became the new ruler, his brother, Mirza Muhammad Hakim was made the governor of Kabul. There were still a few Afghan claimants to the throne at this time. Sikandar Shah Suri had the strongest claim and he had built a powerful army in Punjab. He represented the biggest threat to Akbar. Adil Shah was Sikandar Shah's brother-in-law and was based in Bengal and Bihar to the east. His commander-in-chief was a Hindu named Himu Bakal. Himu Bakal used to be a saltpeter salesman, but eventually became the supervisor of weights in Delhi's market. And that's how he got the name Bakal. Himu Bakal rose through the ranks under the Afghan Suri dynasty and eventually became the chief minister and commander-in-chief for Adil Shah Suri. He had also proven to be an excellent general and had won 20 consecutive battles for Adil Shah Suri. If the Afghans had united against the Mughals, they might have been able to defeat Akbar. As it was, their divisions worked against them. There were a bunch of other threats to Akbar's reign besides the Afghans. After his father's death, Akbar lost control of several provinces. The Rajputs took a number of forts from the Mughals. Gujarat and Malwa renounced their pledges of allegiance to the Mughals. And Kabul, which was the center of Mughal power, was being threatened by Suleiman Shah. Suleiman Shah, the ruler of Badakhshan in northeastern Afghanistan, was also a descendant of Timur and a distant relative of Akbar. The rest of India was divided into a bunch of independent powers. There was Sindh, Balochistan, and Kashmir to the west. Orissa and Gondwana, which were two independent Hindu kingdoms, they were to the east. There was also a lot of activity to the south, 
with the Deccan Sultanates, that is, Ahmadnagar, Bijapur, Golconda, Khandesh, and Berar, all competing for power in the region. On top of all that, the Portuguese were dominating the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea, and they had powerful forts at Goa and Diu. And then, of course, there was the growing Vijayanagar Empire to the south. The Vijayanagar Empire. Let's do a quick and brief summary on the Vijayanagar Empire. The Vijayanagar Empire was a Hindu empire located in southern India. It was founded in 1336 and reached the peak of its power in the 15th and 16th centuries. The capital of the empire was Vijayanagara, which was known for having very beautiful temples and palaces. The Vijayanagar Empire was a major power in India, and its rulers controlled a huge territory that included parts of modern-day Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, and Andhra Pradesh. The empire was known for its cultural achievements and its scholars, poets, and artists. The Vijayanagar Empire was also known for having a strong military, which helped it to expand and defend itself from foreign invasions and attacks. The empire started to decline in the late 16th century during its conflict with the Deccan Sultanates. The Vijayanagar Empire and the Deccan Sultanates were always fighting over control of south-central India during the medieval period. The Vijayanagar Empire was Hindu, and the Deccan Sultanates were obviously Muslim. The Deccan Sultanates, as their name implies, were all located in the Deccan Plateau, while the Vijayanagar Empire was based in the fertile Krishna River Valley. The Krishna River Valley is a region in the southern part of India. It gets its name from the Krishna River, which is one of the longest and most important rivers in India. The Krishna River Valley is important for farming, and it's known for having fertile soil and abundant water resources. The region grows several important crops like rice, sugarcane, and cotton. The Krishna River Valley is also home to important cultural and historical sites like the famous temple city of Pandarpur. The Vijayanagar Empire and the Deccan Sultanates waged several wars against each other, with the Vijayanagar Empire usually coming out on top. However, the Deccan Sultanates gained the upper hand in the late 16th century, and this helped lead to the decline of the Vijayanagar Empire. Even though they were always fighting, the Vijayanagar Empire and the Deccan Sultanates also had some cultural exchange, leading to a mix of Hindu and Muslim influences in the region. Akbar Goes to War Akbar's first big challenge came from Hemu Bakal, the commander-in-chief for Adil Shah Suri. Himu advanced on Agra and Delhi, entered Delhi in early October 1556, and crowned himself Raja Vikramaditya. 
the Mughal military commander in Delhi, Tardi Beg, ran away to Akbar's camp in Punjab. Some people in Akbar's entourage suggested they should retreat to Kabul. But when Bayram Khan executed Tardi Beg for abandoning his post, all of these suggestions died out. Bayram Khan and Emperor Akbar then advanced on Delhi to fight Hemu Bakal. The two armies met at Panipat in early November 1556, which is the same place where Bahabur fought Ibrahim Lodi 30 years earlier to take Delhi. During the fighting, Hemu Bakal was shot in the eye with an arrow while riding an elephant, and he slumped forward on his mount. His army saw this, thought he was dead, and fled the battlefield. Hemu Bakal was captured and brought before Akbar. Akbar wanted to pardon him, but Bayram Khan wasn't having any of that. He stepped forward and chopped off Hemu Bakal's head. He then sent the head to Kabul and had the torso hung up on display in Delhi. Hemu Bakal's soldiers and followers who were captured were also executed and towers of skulls were built from their heads. After defeating Hemu Bakal, Akbar's next big challenge was the two Afghan Suris. He went after the most powerful Afghan leader, Sikandar Shah Suri, first. Sikandar Shah had taken shelter in the Mancote Fort in the Siwalik Hills, which is located in the Himalayan foothills in Himachal Pradesh near Kashmir. Bayram Khan and Akbar laid siege to the fort, and eventually, Sikandar Shah agreed to make peace. He requested and was granted a stipend and estate to live out his life, and he did not cause any further problems for Akbar. Adil Shah Suri, Akbar's last Afghan rival, died fighting the King of Bengal in 1557. Within 18 months, Akbar had neutralized his three strongest rivals. He went on to capture much of northern India in 1558, including Ajmar in Rajasthan, Jaunpur in Uttar Pradesh, and Gwalior in Madhya Pradesh, which was Hemu Bakal's seat of power. Though Akbar had managed to recapture much of the territory that had been lost during his father's reign, there was still a lot of territory remaining. But the main problem was that Akbar was only 15 years old and still very young. And there were many people close to him who wanted to take advantage of his youth. We'll discuss Akbar's conflict with his handlers in more detail in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History history exclusive you can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamic history 
If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Muttaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 13. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Back in 693, Caliph Abdul Malik ibn Marwan sends an army led by Hassan ibn Nu'man to pacify North Africa. Ten years later, Hassan ibn Nu'man defeats the Berber queen Kahina, the Umayyad's last major opponent in North Africa. Umayyad authority now extends from Egypt to the modern borders of Tunisia. However, they have yet to capture much of Algeria or Morocco. So before we begin discussing the Muslim conquest of Andalusia, Let's discuss some of the things happening in North Africa, or as it is known in the Umayyad Caliphate, Ifriqiya. This is the, the Islamic province or the Umayyad province of Ifriqiya. The sub-governor of Ifriqiya was the man who conquered most of it, the conquering general Hassan ibn Nu'man. And as we mentioned in our intro, Hassan ibn Nu'man had been appointed by Caliph Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. We have discussed previously the friction that existed between Abdul Malik and his brother Abdul Aziz, who was the governor of Egypt. Way back in the day, during the, the war with Ibn Zubair, Marwan ibn al-Hakam had established the line of succession for the caliphate. He wanted it to go first to his eldest son, Abdul Malik, and then to his younger son, Abdul Aziz. However, as Abdul Malik, who was the caliph after Marwan ibn Hakam, as he got older, Caliph Abdul Malik wanted his son Al-Wali to succeed him. Abdul Malik tried to convince his brother Abdul Aziz to give up his spot in the line of succession in favor of Al-Walid. Naturally, Abdul Aziz refused to do so. And he also refused to promise to give the succession after him to Al-Walid as well. Well, in the end, none of this really mattered since Abdul Aziz died before Abdul Malik, which allowed Caliph Abdul Malik to pass the caliphate on to his son, Walid, anyway. However, while these two brothers were alive, there was some friction, some animosity between them regarding this succession matter. This eventually led Abdul Aziz, 
who was once again the governor of Egypt, to dismiss Hassan ibn Nu'man as the sub-governor of Ifriqiya. Ifriqiya, at this time, was considered a district, a sub-district under Egypt, and Abdulaziz was the overall governor of Ifriqiya because he was the governor of Egypt. So Abdulaziz, he wanted to appoint his own subordinate rather than his brother's subordinate over Ifriqiya. And the man Abdulaziz wanted to run Ifriqiya for him was Musa ibn Nusir. Abdulaziz appointed Musa ibn Nusir as governor of Ifriqiya in the year 704 CE, which corresponds to the year 84 AH, 84 years after the Hijrah. Now, a little bit of background about Musa ibn Nusayr. Musa's father, whose name was Nusayr, was a Christian Arab who was allied with the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanid Empire, or the Sassanid dynasty, was the ruling family over Persia before the Muslims came through. Nusayr, that is Musa's father, Nusayr was captured and enslaved by the Muslims during the conquest of Persia. Nusayr eventually accepted Islam and was free by his Umayyad owner. Now, I'm not sure if his owner was Abdul Malik or it could have been Uthman. The sources are not exactly clear, but it was, it was one of these two caliphs, either Abdul Malik or Uthman. Anyway, this made Nusayr a maula of the Umayyads even though he was already Arab. Most of the Mawali, which is plural for Maula, and Maula pretty much means a freed slave who was still attached to the family that had once enslaved him. This made Nusayr a Maula, even though he was still an Arab, and most of the Mawali during this period of time were not Arab. They were either Turks or Persians or Greeks or some other ethnicity, but not Arab. This is one of those few instances where the Maula was an Arab. From that point forward, Nusayr and later on his son Musa served the Umayyads loyally. Musa ibn Nusayr eventually came to Egypt where he came under the authority of Abdulaziz. He worked for Abdulaziz. He was loyal to Abdulaziz, the governor of Egypt, and Abdulaziz elevated him to high rank and wanted to reward him for his loyalty by giving him the governorship of Ifriqiya, or North Africa, 